We'll be returning to the Sermon on the Mount this morning. Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 25. If you're using a chair Bible, it can be found on page 860. We'll see in this text Jesus building upon uh, what he has taught previously, especially the, the previous passage we looked at last week. Pastor Tyler helped us understand and apply Jesus' uh, teaching about treasures, eyes, and masters. As we read this passage in Matthew 6, I want to call your attention to what, what a masterful teacher Jesus is. He uses three rhetorical techniques in this portion of Scripture to instruct us. Notice his use of repetition, his use of illustration, and his use of uh, insightful, thoughtful questions. We'll see all three of these in this passage. Let's read together. Matthew 6, starting in verse 25, our Lord says, Therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Consider the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they? Can any of you add one moment to his lifespan by worrying? And why do you worry about clothes? Observe how the wildflowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin thread. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was adorned like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and thrown into the furnace tomorrow, won't he do much more for you, you of little faith? So don't worry, saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow. Because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, our souls cling to the dust. Give us life according to your word. By your spirit, apply your word to our hearts. Convince us of its truth and power. And help us to see your son in his glory. It's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen. In essence, Jesus' teaching here can be summed up in three words. Do not worry. In fact, you can make it two words by using a contraction. Don't worry. For many of us, it might be more appropriate to say, stop worrying. But the fact is, as easy as it is to say something like, do not worry or do not be anxious, it's much more difficult to actually rid oneself of that anxiety. As I was preparing for the sermon, I came across a study conducted by the Barna Group in 2019, examining the prevalence of anxiety in young adults. This was specifically asking those between 18 and 35. This was four years ago, so think about that group of, of 22 to 39-year-olds. 
Many of you in here, myself included, fall into that range, and, and those that don't, there's likely someone you know or care about deeply that does. So listen to these statistics on anxiety. Of those who responded to this survey, 40% reported that they were anxious about important decisions. 40% also said they were uncertain about their future. When asked if they were afraid of failure, again, 40% of 15,000 respondents said yes, they felt that fear. Finally, 36% reported they felt pressure to be successful. It would seem these words which Jesus spoke 2,000 years ago in Israel are likely applicable to many of us in America today. Thankfully, Jesus does not merely command us to not be anxious, but he takes care to show us the causes of anxiety, the result of anxiety, and finally, the cure for anxiety. That will form our, our outline as we make our way through this text today, the causes, result, and cure for anxiety. But before we jump into that, I think it would be helpful here to pause and, and take some time to define exactly what it is. What does it mean to worry? Someone wants to find anxiety as fear in search of a cause. At its root, anxiety can be defined as a fear of the future. We are afraid of what we cannot know. I think most of us would admit we know that worrying does not do us any good. Worrying doesn't make tomorrow any better, just makes today worse. Most of the things we worry about never come to pass, and many times the things which hurt us the worst are things we never thought to worry about. Yet even though we know it's fruitless to worry, we do it anyway. It's in our sinful nature to try to grasp what lies beyond our reach. So why do we do this? For at least two reasons which our Lord outlines in these verses. First, the first cause of anxiety is a lost focus. The first cause of anxiety is a lost focus. Jesus begins this passage by saying, therefore, I tell you. When, when he says, therefore, we know he's building off of what has come before. As Pastor Tyler explained last week, we're all faced with choices, choices about where we will store our treasure, whether on earth and heaven, which eye we will follow, the, the single eye or the, the split, the distracted eye, and which master we will serve, God or money. In this passage, Jesus brings that to bear on his hearers. When we lack the single eye, when we try to serve two masters, we end up dividing our hearts and dividing our attention. Jesus points out this lost focus by asking the question, isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? The word used for life here is often translated as soul. Jesus is saying, isn't your soul more than just a meal? He's calling us back to just a few verses ago when he compared storing treasure on earth versus storing it up in heaven. Jesus is telling his listeners and telling us our focus must be on the next life, not on this one. As well-meaning as many of us might be, our focus drifts. It is easier now than ever to be distracted. Ours is an age of distraction. The dual rise of smartphones and social media has resulted in human beings as a species being aware of things happening in one another's lives and across the globe nearly instantaneously. 
our attention is stretched beyond capacity. And most of those things which are crying out most loudly for our attention are things that are not of heaven. They are not eternal matters. They are often petty, or perhaps if they are weighty, they are beyond our capacity to do anything about. And not only do we have these new problems to reckon with, we still have to deal with the old ones. We have not, as a species, moved beyond the need for shelter, food, clothing. These things are still necessary for our survival. But Jesus doesn't chide us or shame us for these concerns. On the contrary, he helps us by telling us to look outside. Verse 26, consider the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they? John Stott, one of the most well-known preachers and writers of the 20th century, loved to quote this verse. He said, some readers may know that I happen myself to have been since boyhood an enthusiastic bird watcher. I know, of course, that bird watching is regarded by some as a rather eccentric pastime. They view the likes of me with quizzical and patronizing amusement. But I claim biblical warrant for this activity. Consider the fowls of the air, said Jesus, according to the authorized version. And in basic English, this could be translated, watch birds. <laughs> I don't know if that's enough to convince me to take up that particular hobby. But Jesus doesn't want us to just look. He wants us to see some, something particular about the birds. They don't farm. I was studying for this sermon one evening, reading on my porch and, and looked out and I saw a handful of birds perched on the trees and houses in my neighborhood. And I noticed something. None of them had a shovel. I saw no rakes or sickles or bird-sized John Deere tractors. Yet from what I could tell, none of them were sick or starving. They certainly had enough energy to fly around and squawk. How is it that these birds managed to eat? Jesus says God feeds them. Jesus' point here is not that the birds do nothing. They don't merely sit around with their mouths open towards heaven waiting on something to fall in. No, they work for their food. They hunt, pray, or they scavenge seeds. But they are not worried. And if God makes sure the birds eat, why should we worry? Perhaps way, the best story I can think of uh, to demonstrate this lost focus is the story of Mary and Martha. Many of you will be familiar with this. We find it in Luke 10. Jesus and his disciples are traveling. They enter a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed them into her home. She had a sister, Mary. Mary was sitting at the Lord's feet, listening to what Jesus said. But Martha, God's word says, was distracted by her many tasks. She came up to Jesus and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? So tell her to give me a hand. The Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has made the right choice, and it will not be taken away from her. Martha's a bit of a busybody here, but it's implied that she's working on preparing food for her guests. And she's upset that her sister is not helping her prepare this meal. Mary, Mary instead is sitting, listening to this teacher. 
So Martha confronts Jesus, and he tells her, Mary has made the right choice. Literally, we could, we could translate that as, she's chosen the better portion. She's chosen the better meal. Martha was worried about what they would eat. Jesus says, I have food you don't know about. So we see the first cause of anxiety is a lost focus. The second cause of anxiety is a little faith. The second cause of anxiety is a little faith. Matthew 6, picking up in verse 28, I know I'm skipping verse 27, I'll come back to it. Verse 28 through 30 says this, why do you worry about clothes? Observe how the wildflowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin thread. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was adorned like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and thrown into the furnace tomorrow, won't he do much more for you, you of little faith? Having told us to watch birds, Jesus now says, look at flowers. Abby and the, and the kids and I went to Texas on spring break. We went and visited family in, in Houston. And I'd never been that far south in Texas before. I grew up in Oklahoma. And I've been to the Dallas area a handful of times, but never further south than that. And I was amazed when we got to central Texas how beautiful it was. Partly this was because it was March, so here in Kansas City we were obviously still in the clutches of winter. <laughs> but in Texas, spring was in full bloom. And we were driving through these rolling green hills covered in lush trees. And then all of a sudden, the trees disappeared. And the hills were covered with wildflowers, deep purple, bright orange. It was beautiful, fascinating. And what I find so interesting, and this is Jesus' point here, is that no one cultivated those fields. Nobody was making trips to the Home Depot for topsoil. This was God's doing. God did it because he delighted to make the fields beautiful. He has delighted to adorn his creation since time began. And if God clothes even the grass in such beauty, why are you worried about your clothes? In both illustrations, the birds and the flowers, Jesus is making an argument from the lesser to the greater. He uses simple, ordinary examples that we all can access to assure us that God cares for birds and flowers won't he care for his children? Hence his question in verse 30, won't he do much more for you, you of little faith? Jesus is calling them, calling us little faiths. That's the worst nickname you could ever have. But too often it is accurate for many of us. When we give in to worry, we are demonstrating our faith is too small. Anxiety begins where faith ends. When we get anxious, we are declaring, we do not trust God in this situation. And the lost focus shows that worry is foolishness, caring too much about the wrong things. Little faith shows that worry is arrogance. We are trying to put ourselves in the place of God. For some reason, we think that he wasn't telling the truth when he said he would take care of us. We think that we're on our own, and so we worry 
to try to convince ourselves the future is in our power to control. Adam and Eve took the fruit in the garden because they questioned, did God really say? Is he really looking out for my best interests? When we became anxious, even though we may not be doing this at a conscious level, we are also questioning, did God really say? Is he really looking out for my best interests? Now, I want to take a moment here to clarify something. Jesus is teaching here that anxiety is sinful. But this is not to say that we should not be concerned about anything. Parents, you ought to be concerned with your children. They have been placed into your care, and you are responsible to care for them and to bring them up in the fear of the Lord. Church members, we members of Liberty Baptist Church ought to be concerned for one another. We have covenanted together to watch out for each other, to help each other live in faithfulness. We must all be concerned for our souls, looking into ourselves to ensure we are living in obedience to God. But this is not the same thing as being anxious. Parents, you need not fret over the future of your children. You must Realize it is not within your control. You must be faithful in the here and now and trust God with what's to come. Church members, you must not worry about your brothers and sisters, but this does not give you a free pass to not care about their spiritual well-being. See, the opposite of anxiety is not indifference. It's trust. We are called to be faithful and diligent in the present, and trust our Heavenly Father for the future. I think it's funny, not funny like ha-ha, but interesting, that most of us would say we don't struggle with trusting in God for our eternal salvation. There are certainly some of us that do, and I hope to be of help to you as well in this sermon, but most of us, I think, find it easier to trust God with eternity than to trust him with tomorrow. Consider in your own heart, if you are certain you will feast in the house of Zion, why do you doubt that God's going to put table on the food tomorrow? Food on the table tomorrow. <laughs> Imagine there was a doctor that you had gone to, and you did not know you were sick. You were just going for a checkup, and he found that you were sick beyond what you could imagine. You were terminally ill, and there was nothing you could do to change that outcome. But he had a cure. And he gave it to you at no cost. He rid you of your disease. You might say he gave you a new life. Would you not then follow that doctor's advice as it relates to your daily health? How many of us, though, treat God in that way? I know God saved me from my sin and secured my eternity with him, but I'm not sure he can handle the groceries. Notice that while Jesus here is promising God will clothe and feed us, this is not exactly a health and wealth gospel that he's preaching. The birds have food every day, but they have to work for it every day. And some migrate seasonally to find more food. Birds aren't wealthy. I mentioned those birds I saw the other night. None had a shovel, but I didn't see any wearing gold chains either. God has not promised a life of comfort. Quite the opposite. In John 16, Jesus says, you will have suffering in this world. Be courageous. I have conquered the world. We worry because we fear suffering will come to us. 
Jesus, in his kindness, removes that uncertainty. He promises suffering is on the way. You will suffer. In John's gospel, this is the last thing Jesus says to his disciples before he's taken away to be crucified. He's been warning them in chapters 15 and 16 about all the troubles that await them for following him. But these last words inspire faith. Be courageous. I have conquered the world. So we've examined the causes of anxiety, a lost focus, and a little faith. Let's now look at the result of anxiety. The result of anxiety is a life of futility. The result of anxiety is a life of futility. In verse 27, Jesus asks, Can any of you add one moment to his lifespan? It needs to be said, one of the main reasons we shouldn't worry is that it's futile. It accomplishes nothing. And there's some debate over this verse because it's one of those examples of the translators doing a little bit more interpretation than usual. In the original Greek, the question's even more preposterous. Jesus says, can anyone add one cubit to his height by worrying? A cubit is an ancient measurement equivalent to about 18 inches. So Jesus is literally asking, have any of you ever worried enough that you grew a foot and a half? And that sounds ridiculous. But the truth is that your worry is as likely to make you grow 18 inches as it is to make you live any longer. We are dealing with equal levels of insanity. Jesus is pointing out the absurdity of worry. So worry accomplishes nothing. And in fact, it accomplishes less than nothing. Look at verse 34. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow, because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Jesus says here, being anxious is like trying to take tomorrow's trouble and make it today's. That's obviously impossible. At best, you're borrowing trouble, but you have to give it back. Whatever trouble awaits you tomorrow will await you tomorrow. The only difference is if you make yourself miserable today in fear of what might happen tomorrow. As I mentioned earlier, worry doesn't make tomorrow better. It just makes today worse. This is the great lie of anxiety. All temptations are a bait and switch maneuver. Satan always promises one thing and delivers something else. In the case of worry... Satan promises, if you worry, you can have a better tomorrow. But looking back over our worries, all we find are wasted yesterdays. Worry is not preparing for tomorrow, it's wasting today. The best thing you can do today to prepare for tomorrow is to draw near to the Lord. I think it would be an interesting experiment for all of us to write down everything we're tempted to worry about and go back after a year, to see how differently everything turned out. I was talking with a friend recently, reflecting on the, the course of my life over the last five years or so. Abby and I joined LBC five years ago last month. At the time, I had plans and dreams and, yes, even anxieties. But most of what has happened over the last five years, I would not have guessed. We've been blessed with the friendship and ministry of you people here at Liberty Baptist. And yes, 
yet we've also had to endure the hardship of removing our senior pastor. We've welcomed two beautiful daughters and seen our son grow up in stature and godliness, and yet we've also had to bury each of our fathers sooner than we'd expected. The Lord has been kind to provide for us with a job I didn't even know existed five years ago. Yet that has not removed the pressures and anxieties of work and of providing. I don't know what the next five years hold. In fact, I don't think my mind could bear the weight of the knowledge, even if it was possible. In the words of the famed philosopher Jack Nicholson, I can't handle the truth. I don't know what the future holds, but I know worry won't help it. So what do I do? Jesus does not leave me out to dry. Matthew 6, 31 through 33 provides a solution. Jesus says, so don't worry, saying what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you. See, the Gentiles in Jesus' time worried, just like us. And they thought that what they needed to do to secure their future was appease their gods. They offered sacrifices so that they might have a good harvest or find romantic satisfaction or acquire power and status before men. And they eagerly sought these things like so many little worker ants. They milled about their little works hoping to achieve something. And wasted away their lives. But Jesus says the way to get these things isn't to eagerly seek them, but to seek something else. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you. What is seeking the kingdom? It it is aligning the concerns and desires of your heart with God's. It's making God's priorities your priorities. It's being more concerned with finding a job that allows you to prioritize regular church attendance and time with your family rather than maximizing your income. It's thinking more about creative ways to be generous than finding ways to spend on things that have no eternal value. It's more about finding ways to put yourself in contact with people who have never called on the name of Jesus for the purpose of sharing the good news with them than seeking your own comfort. Jesus says this is the way of getting your needs met by God. C.S. Lewis puts it like this. Those who aim at heaven find that they get earth thrown in. Those who aim at earth get neither. Notice this is an indirect solution. We prefer to be like the Gentiles, appeasing God so he'll do what we need. As one writer points out, this is treating God like a vending machine. We want a one-to-one ratio of input and output. But we must realize we are not dealing with a cosmic vending machine, but a heavenly father. That brings us to our last point. The cure for anxiety is a loving father. You may not have noticed, but there's been a, a, a subtle yet significant shift as we've gone through the Sermon on the Mount. In the beginning portion, there's an emphasis on the kingdom of heaven. Jesus outlines the the proper behavior, the the moral code of the kingdom citizens. But at the end of chapter 5, that emphasis changes. 
Jesus changes from talking about the kingdom of heaven to talking about your father in heaven. Throughout this portion of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus emphasizes again and again that God is a father. He calls him father in heaven, heavenly father. He refers to him as the father who sees in secret, the father who rewards in secret. In the Sermon on the Mount, we can say Jesus reveals the fatherhood of God. J.I. Packer calls this revelation of the Father the heart of the New Testament. Jesus wants us to understand that those who are in Christ are not merely citizens of a heavenly kingdom, but sons and daughters of a heavenly Father. And it's because of this, because there is a God in heaven who is not just the creator, not just the eternal judge, but he is our Father. We have no need to worry. Look back at verse 26. Consider the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they? God is not the Father of birds. He is their creator. He provides for them. But how much more does he delight to take care of his children? Look at verse 32. The Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them. Abby has expressed that one of the most difficult things about being a mom is that our children expect to eat every day. (laughs) And our kids have no jobs or money. They are dependent on Abby and I to feed them three to eight times a day. This is the attitude we must adopt with God. Thanks be to God, Abby and I have been able to feed our children every day of their lives. And they don't worry about whether they'll get to eat tomorrow. They may not like what's for dinner, but it will be provided for them. In the same way, we need not worry. We may not like what we get. But we know that our Father knows best. He knows what we need. And he delights to take care of us. Reverend Jacob Gerber, he's a a pastor in Nebraska. He puts it like this, by this posture, that is a, a posture of humility and helplessness, Jesus trains us to deal with our anxieties relationally rather than transactionally. We aren't trying to pull a lever on a heavenly vending machine. We are growing in our experiential knowledge of the love of our heavenly Father. Through this, God trains us to love his kingdom first so that we are content in every situation regardless of need. Ultimately, God must lead us to love him so that we trust our Father no matter what he may bring into our lives today or tomorrow. By this posture, God gives us something we desperately need, a settled assurance of his fatherly kindness towards us. So there it is. No one in this room needs to ever worry again. We can hope to grow and obey God more and more in this way. But I realize this solution only applies to those who know God as their father. And that likely is not some of you. But it can be. Jesus has redeemed us, Galatians says, by his sacrifice that we might receive adoption. (coughs) The terms are really this simple. If you trust in the finished work of Jesus on the cross to take away your sins 
and believe God raised him from the dead, you will be given the right to call God your Father in heaven. If that seems too easy, it is. But like a dad who lets his six-year-old pin him in a wrestling match, God deals with us unfairly. All it takes is for us to trust, trust him. And when we trust him for salvation, we can trust him for everything else. I want to end with this quote from J.I. Packer, because I can't say it any better than he did. This is from the book Knowing God, one of, if not the best theology book of the last hundred years. In chapter 19, he talks about the fatherhood of God. Here is a portion of that. You sum up the whole of New Testament teaching in a single phrase if you speak of it as a revelation of the fatherhood of the Holy Creator. In the same way you sum up the whole of New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's Holy Father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his Father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his his whole outlook on life, it means he does not understand Christianity very well. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and thank you that through Jesus you have made it possible for us to receive the spirit of adoption that we can call upon the name of Jesus and be saved. Thank you that having settled our eternity you also delight in providing for us in the here and now. I pray for each of us in this room to to know you more deeply as our Father in heaven. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.